Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on WBAI. I'm Lee Zishi in the studio today with Jack Devine. And today on this snowy, mushy Tuesday, we'll be covering the headlines from a socialist analyst. Then we'll be discussing the surge in labor action in care work before speaking with United Federation of Teachers member Gia Lee about organizing here in New York. And then we'll wrap up the show with a conversation with Sarah and Michelle, members of New York State Nurses Association, about their informational pickets tomorrow, as well as a potential strike in March. So let's start with the headlines. Um, Though power and heat has been restored at Brooklyn Metropolitan Detention Center, hearings and a visit from a federal court judge have spotlighted ongoing humanitarian crisis at the facility. New York DSA has endorsed Tiffany Caban for Queens District Attorney. If you're interested in hearing more from Tiffany, you can listen to our past uh, episode on electoral politics. And if you want to know more about why this is such an important issue, you can listen to our episode about uh, abolishing jails. Hearings also began today in Albany on the Climate and Community Protection Act, which would move New York off of fossil fuels by 2050. The bill has passed the Assembly three times, and advocates are hopeful that this year will be a major year for climate legislation to pass the state Senate as well. Hearings will be held on the bill in New York City uh, this Thursday morning. And uh, since we're socialists, that means we fight for workers everywhere in the world. And uh, over the past uh, month or so, there's been a really critical strike down in Mexico, uh, factory workers there who um, you know, are uh, participate in uh, the international uh, labor system that produce, um, uh, I believe, um, automobile parts have been engaged in a wildcat strike, and uh, it seems that they have won, that uh, 25,000 workers are going to receive a 20% increase in wages. And it's critical um, for us as socialists to fight for workers whenever they're coming together and fighting for a better world. And these workers deserve their higher pay. So solidarity to the factory workers down in Mexico. Um, Here in the United States, there is a critical strike in Denver. The teachers, uh, a few thousand of them, have walked out and they're fighting for higher pay. They're fighting for their community, for their students to make sure that their schools are well funded. So they're making sure that quality teachers can remain in the system so they have a living wage, so they can live in the city of Denver, and so that, um, you know, the best teachers are not. 
having to force their entire schedule around uh, test scores and and these incentive structures that really undermine um, the schools and the poorest communities that lack the resources and need their teachers to, you know, uh, really commit to um, working with the students in a way that uh, allows them to unleash their talents. Uh, so if you want to uh, support this strike, um, you can both go to the Denver Teachers uh, website, which is denverteachers.org. Um, their Twitter handle is at Denver Teachers. And then there's the um, the larger union, which is um, NEA, and you can follow that at NEA Today on Twitter. Uh, if you would also like to contribute um, to the tamales for teachers that DSA and ISO are working together um, to you know make sure that the teachers on these picket lines have food and also can use them as hand warmers as well. Uh, go to the GoFundMe, that's a Tamales for Teachers. And then there's also a strike fund for the Denver teachers on Gun- GoFundMe as well. Uh, you can either uh, Google GoFundMe and both of those subjects or go to GoFundMe.com um, forward slash F forward slash T-A-M-A-L-E-S uh, dash F-O-R dash T. E-A-C-H-E-R-S. Um, you can follow, uh, and you can also find this information on the uh, DSA Twitter, which is at Dem Socialists, or Denver DSA's Twitter, which is at um, DSA Denver. We're going to go to a brief clip um, from the NEA that highlights what this uh, strike is really about. The power of the union is the power to love someone else's child. To care about the future of Denver Public Schools. We're striking because teachers deserve a predictable and transparent salary that is competitive with other districts. I went to school to help students and we're just asking the district to give us a little wage so that we can do that. People aren't getting paid a fair wage, especially teachers. And uh, it's time to, to bring up the wages so that we can, uh, so we can survive economically. We are demanding a raise and more transparent base pay so that we can stay here for our kids. There's so much turnover. It's really disappointing to see your veteran teachers leave for better pay into different careers. Our students are suffering because talented teachers are leaving either the profession or they're leaving the district entirely. Uh, we, we'd much rather be in our classrooms right now, um, but we're doing this for them and it's going to help everybody more in the long run. We are with you in this battle. We are with you in this lucha, this fight for love. Go! Fight! Win! So it was really amazing to hear uh, from the teachers out there who are participating in, a, in an amazing collective action, and they're showing their power that the society cannot function without their labor, and we deserve, uh, they deserve everything that they're asking for and much, much more. And it's really important for anyone out there who calls himself a socialist or even a progressive to stand with these teachers in their fight um, for public education. Uh, this um, strike comes in the uh, wake of a wave of um, action uh, across the country in the past year. In 2018, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics just released a report that there were 20 major work stoppages involving 485,000 workers. Um, 
the U.S. Bureau of Labor reported um, that the number of major work stoppages in 2018 was the highest since 2007. And I think even more importantly, the number of workers involved was the highest since 1986. This was a total of um, 533,000 workers. Uh, this is really kind of the rebirth of a radical labor movement in this country, workers recognizing that they have power and they, they need to come together collectively to fight for dignity, to fight for a living wage and fight for empowerment in their workplace and in their community. And I think it's also important to note that this um, data doesn't account for a lot of the untraditional labor organizing and actions that have uh, happened across the country in this past year. Like the Google walkout, where 20,000 tech workers um, walked out um, during the workday to protest against sexual harassment and the gender, gender division of labor in the workplace, as well as the fight for 15 fast food strikes that have been happening across the country and these kind of small numbers of workers at an individual site. But this organizing is happening not just nationally, but internationally. And so what this really represents, and this continued in this year, not which is this Denver teacher strike, but also the Los Angeles teacher, teacher strike and strikes in um, some other areas as well, is that the, there's an emergence of a, like a vanguard of the working class in social reproductive labor. Um, Could you uh, maybe break that down for me a little bit? I mean, I know what all those things, I know what social is, I know what reproductive labor, but kind of in general, what is social reproductive labor? Yeah, we don't want to get caught in too much um, academic jargon here. So I think it's important to explain that. Thank you for that question. Uh, social reproductive labor is um, care work. It's the work that forms the basis of a society, that if we did not have this work, um, whether it's in you know institutions as we see them now, like teaching and nursing, or it's um, work that takes place in the home, domestic labor, you know, cleaning your house, taking care of your children, um, giving birth to children, all this work um, that is the basis of society and that without it, we could not function um, that's what social reproduction, reproductive labor is. And it tends to be, quote unquote, feminized. And this enables the ruling class to devalue its labor in the marketplace, even though the actual, this actual labor is far more valuable than most high paid jobs, which actually many studies have revealed not have a negative impact on the economy. Like a lot of professional class jobs um, represent a $3 trillion drain on the economy, on the actual real economy, but they provide a boost in stock prices um, to, uh, to big corporations. It makes investors think that they're um, producing value when it's just producing value for the market, not for real human beings. So yeah, it's mostly the the ladies that are getting stuff done in our country, the teachers, the nurses, um, and yeah, I mean, if you think about it, these are some of the you know least appreciated, I think, people sometimes in society. You know, they're they're taking care of our families, they're taking care of our children. I thought that clip was so wonderful um, from the teachers out in Denver. You know, about this is about what it takes to love somebody else's child, and these things are aren't really being always appreciated and valued in the way that they actually contribute to the basic fabric um, of our society. And, you know, why do you think that, you know, what's so important about organizing in these specific sectors? I mean, I think there are so many reasons. 
uh, especially just what you just laid out. It's this. It's such important work. Um, it's necessary for our society to survive. But at the same time, the the workers in it, especially since they're typically women in our society, is based on these patriarchal, sexist um, systems that their work is devalued. So it's a place where. Um, as socialists, we can come together and fight for you know a real valuation of people's labor. Uh, and then another reason I think it's critical, particularly um, at this time, is that you know they're not. We don't have factories across the U.S. I mean, there was never really any time where like the vast majority of people were working in factories, but a big place where people are socialized, where they're interacting with other human beings our schools and hospitals. And these places take up a huge portion of the economy. Uh, healthcare, I believe is like one fifth of the total GDP. So for or- organizing in these places is so critical because one, it's necessary. They can't take away the schools and the hospitals, um, the ruling class, if they want society to function. So they need these workers. They're, they can't be you know offshored to um, another country, and they can't really be automated in the same way. And I think it's also important to note that it's uh, not just um, teachers and nurses, but there was um, in the fall a really critical and amazing strike of hotel workers. And I think it's important to see these workers as also workers in social reproduction because hotels play a really critical role in um, how you know business elites, when they're traveling around the country, they're going to their, their meetings, they need these hotels as a, a place to, to reproduce their own labor, to go to sleep and have somewhere to stay while they're um, you know, planning to uh, fire 20,000 workers in Texas or something. I don't know what they're doing in those meetings. Um, But those hotel workers are also part of this movement, this socialist feminist movement to value the labor of the people who are reproducing the basis of our society. I mean, these are all, if you're looking at schools and you're looking at hospitals, you know, these are things that are being more and more privatized too and you know that these things that should be public goods are now being you know their whole thing is how do you make somebody money you know it's not about what's the quality of education or you know are we giving the best care it's like how do we make so much money off of that and I'm sure that that's directly leading to these you know horrible conditions where people you know where it's one teacher to way too many students or one nurse to way too many um, patients and yeah I mean this this is like the direct result of capitalism and everything we're, we're talking about here. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. The teachers have made it very clear that they are fighting against privatization. Uh, this was at the forefront of the LA teacher strike in January, which, uh, as we reported a couple weeks ago, was successful. They won all their demands because they showed that they have the real power. Um, in the system as as long as they can come together and collectively organize, which is a difficult process. It's not something you can just do with the snap of the finger. It takes a lot of work, but they did that work. And they also, in this fight against privatization, they were showing um, you know, how important it is to organize with your community, uh, to with the students and with the parents, that this uh, class war is happening in the classrooms, that the most vulnerable populations, the most uh, marginalized groups are being targeted in this war of privatization. Charter schools 
don't del- deliver better results, but what they do do is take resources out of um, our poorest communities and take it to these schools where it's the high test takers are allowed to remain in. But if you're a poor kid who uh, doesn't have the time to focus on your studies, you get can get kicked out of the school. Or if you're a student with disabilities, you can get kicked out of the school. So it's really a fight over resources and the best way to for people to take power over their resources is to collectively organize and doing that in the workplace and particularly in workplaces of social re- reproduction is proving to be the uh, a critical fl- front of class struggle and building socialism and one thing i wanted to bring up is since you're so involved in the movement for eco-socialism why is um teaching and nursing why is care work so essential for overcoming the climate apocalypse and building a world that can is sustainable and can last yeah, I mean, doing climate organizing is when I recognize that nurses are some of the most amazing, great organizers out there because they do show up to climate rallies. You know, they recognize that having, you know, a huge fossil fuel plant is why they're treating so many kids with asthma. Um, you know, they they recognize that that the climate crisis is is directly related to healthcare. Um, you know, we're going to see. Uh, the rise of diseases that we've never seen, you know, as more and more mosquitoes can now live in places they could never live before. Uh, You know, also when there's disasters, when there's hurricanes, when there's wildfires, I mean, it's these nurses that are seeing up front that, you know, what the actual health and human impacts are. And of course, teachers are also really involved. You know, there's what's the point of of teaching students and giving them a few, you know, teaching them all this stuff if they're literally not going to have a future, anymore. So I think both of these um, groups are very much involved in in climate and eco-socialist organizing. And their jobs are also carbon neutral. They're not adding to the destruction, destructive process. It can be a real basis of a better world. Uh, And so um, after this conversation, uh, it's I think it's really critical to talk to a teacher themselves. So earlier this week, I went out and I met with Gia Lee. She is a member of the United Teachers Federation, and she's a really um, involved uh, organizer and activist. Um, so let's listen to, into her. She has some really great things to say and can really help you if you want to organize your workplace yourself. Hi, I'm here with Gia Lee, a teacher here in New York City and an active member of the UFT, uh, part of the Reform Caucus and fighting for radical democracy within public education in New York. Um, so Gia, why don't you just tell us a little about yourself? What motivated you to become so active in organizing the teachers union here in New York? Well, first, thanks so much uh, for taking the time out to talk to a teacher. Um, I know that you know, there are a lot of big actions happening across the country and internationally. And um, for me, activism really started probably in 2001. I started teaching that year. It was the first year of No Child Left Behind. And I came into an educational system that was what is now known as like the ed reform period of education, the efforts to privatize public education and one of the main strategies being um, to kind of target the teachers union. And what that looks like on the broader level and what that actually looks like inside of a school is really uh, so important to highlight because uh, teaching conditions and student learning conditions were um, 
becoming so stressful, uh, so oppressive um, and constrained that I got to a point where I thought I was gonna leave teaching altogether. I'm a special education teacher now for like 18 years and I never, I thought this was it, this is my profession, this is the thing I wanted to do my whole life. And I was quickly discovering that teaching was not what I thought it was. And it was because actually the reforms that we were being forced to implement in our classrooms were detrimental to our students. Also facing huge budget cuts, um, teacher evaluations based on test scores, really, really oppressive administrative practices where we were being you know, micromanaged. It became divide and conquer, a system of competition within a school. And I thought I was just gonna leave until I discovered that there was a group of educators and parents and other community members um, who had formed the grassroots education movement here in New York City. They created a documentary called The Inconvenient Truth Behind Waiting for Superman. So if you haven't seen it, it's free online. I would, you know, I highly recommend checking it out because I followed it to the end, to the credits, and found an email. I emailed that person immediately and said, I'm in a situation where I don't want to leave the school system. It feels like we need to fight, but I feel completely alone. What can I do? And it, someone responded right away and said, we're actually having a forum at Murray Bertram High School downtown. You should come. And that weekend, I happened to go, and that's where I met um, educators uh, who were just in the process of forming the reform caucus that you're talking of, um, the movement of rank and file educators more. So it's a caucus, kind of like a political party within the United Federation of Teachers. And I just got completely involved. I threw myself at this work. It became like a beacon of hope that yes, there are other people who are also feeling like, you know, the increase in charters, uh, co-locations, the stress of a school having quote unquote low test scores are, is now gonna be deemed as a failing school and put on a state list. And now the administration is on the backs of educators um, and even on the backs of kids to improve test scores. And that became the main drive. And once we kind of found each other, that work has been ongoing and it's been six years since the formation of the caucus. Yeah, and we just kind of haven't looked back. This war on teachers and on public education is something that's you know happening all across the country. And you see over this past year, or even really stretching back to 2012 in Chicago, these all these teachers are coming together with their communities, with their students, and they're fighting for public education and for worker empowerment. Um, why um, in all these places, in West Virginia, in Arizona, in Los Angeles, were they able to organize for a strike? And what's different uh, here in New York? That's a great question. So first, folks should know that Moore has been organizing not in isolation. Um, we haven't been, you know, working in silos across the country in terms of like Chicago, Los Angeles, you know, Seattle, Washington, Boston. We've formed a very kind of informal network. It started off as a kind of informal network of educators who kind of knew each other, you know, through other organizations and through labor notes. If folks are, you know, familiar with labor notes, this year they celebrate their 40th anniversary and they helped us form this network we get together almost every year. We 
strategize together. We hold forums with each other to kind of uh, share strategies and not just, you know, like how to's, but um, also things that haven't worked and building a broader understanding of the context, the political context that we're all living in. We definitely notice all the similarities of ed reform there. What we've seen a lot of in places that is kind of uniform is some kind of private takeover of whatever the body is, like either be it the school board. Here in New York City, we no longer have elected school boards. They got rid of it and said we have something called mayoral control. And that seems to be a, a keystone to um, being able to implement further policies like increasing charter caps or um, determining budgets for schools. And once we noticed all these similarities, similarities, we started to figure out together ways to strategize and fight back. And number one um, is organizing with the communities and other um, parent organizations that seem to be coming up also fighting the same things. You see that in Chicago, you saw that in, in Los Angeles and other places. And then interestingly, in a red state like West Virginia, it, it was almost like ed reform in the blue states, but on steroids where they were hitting rock bottom and you had a few teachers that we were connected with who said, we're just gonna put something out there and see how other people are feeling about the gradual, I call it like um, a slow lobster boil, you know, where it's like slow burn, you don't really notice it at first, but you are slowly being destroyed, right? It, it's crumbling infrastructure, it's your quality of life, everything, you just keep chipping away and you, ha you, have, you reach a, a breaking point. And teachers in West Virginia and Virginia and in um, North Carolina, hit breaking points and it happened within a matter of weeks where they started to just kind of organically um, came together and now they've formed a caucus it's a statewide caucus but it's a reform caucus within west virginia um, and other states as well and the red states are also finding this dire need to have some kind of entity that's organized that can sustain through the other blows that, you know, blowbacks that are gonna happen as a result of the strike. So yeah, now part of our network, we have red states and it's growing. Uh, I can tell you that in New York City, if folks don't know, we are the largest, possibly the largest union of any state. And we represent um, around 200,000 members. LA is a third of the size of New York City. Chicago, is the size of Brooklyn. So their organizing abilities are a little, I mean, it was very difficult where they, they were, but imagine that times three or, you know, tenfold. So, um, and the other reason why it's really, really difficult here in New York City is because we're so large, we're seen as the political kind of body that will help build up whatever the leadership has decided. So we have a very bureaucratic um, business union that um, their strategy for the last 40, 50 years has been to make good friends with friendly politicians, negotiate behind closed doors, and then basically guarantee votes. Um, the way they've negotiated in the past you know, decade or so around the time of ed reform has been to kind of go along. You see, we saw them defend the Common Core, defend high-stakes standardized testing, teachers about, you know, teacher evaluations connected to them. We've seen them basically defend and even claim that we own these things and that we should have a seat at the table. Meanwhile, educators have been crying out saying, no, these are actually meant to destroy us. We're not having a seat at the table. We're what's on the table. 
leadership has been very resistant to kind of listening to that. Um, but we see now this kind of ground up push, pushing the union leadership to sway more, to be more receptive, to listening to organizing tactics. But um, we're far ways in New York City just because of the leadership that has a stranglehold. In LA, Union Power, which is their reform caucus, took over leadership four years ago. So those were our people. We knew before they took over that their plan was to take over the leadership and um, organize for a contract and organize against privatization. That was their goal in connection with all community members, not continuing this bureaucratic business union model. And so they've been successful, as you as we all know now. It works. It really works. And they've implemented a lot of um, the organizing tools that we've been learning through labor notes. So uh, we know that it can work. And same thing in Chicago and Arizona and other places. What you seem to be highlighting is like, it's so important to fight for public education through empowering the teachers themselves. Yeah. Why is this such a critical aspect of building socialism? And what mm -hmm. does organizing on the ground day to day really mean? It's absolutely critical that we be the change. And the only way to do that is to counter the narrative of bad schools, um, the narrative of bad teachers, it's just absolutely bogus. And yeah, the only way to counter that narrative is to create our own. And we're seeing it happen. Like what's the plan uh, moving forward for mm -hmm. the Reform Caucus move uh, here in New York? Um, and are there any actions that you would recommend mm -hmm. to anyone listening to this yes. to come to or maybe events that mm -hmm. would uh, you know, help them get involved in this process? Yeah, so the movement of Regular Educators is once again running in the um, UFT elections. It's the spring March ballots go out uh, to all UFT members. People should know also that uh, retirees get a vote and they the UFT is ensure that there's an office in Florida, in Tel Aviv and other retirement communities. It's almost like a loyalty vote. And that when that happens, we have to make sure that actual active members who are working under the current contract working under these current conditions, vote, turn out the vote more than people who are not in the system. So if you know teachers um, in New York City Department of Education, the UFT, and as a UFT member, please um, tell them to vote. Look out for the ballots. They come in the mail and vote in uh, March. We have general meetings once a month. You can go on uh, the more Movement of Rank and File Educators uh, WordPress site. We also have um, a Facebook page, Twitter handle, and get a lot of the information there. I've heard rumors that there's a happy hour that teachers oh, yeah. can also attend if they want to. Yes, those dates, so now they're kind of happening more frequently in different boroughs. I know of one happening on March 1st in District 15, and that's open to anyone who's an educator. The information is available on, um, on the, the website. All right, great. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and we're looking forward to hearing more updates on how you're radicalizing the teachers' movement here in New York. Oh, yeah, me too. Thank <laughs> you. 
Well, that was our interview with DSA member and amazing teacher, organizer, and activist, Gia Lee. Uh, We hope to hear more from her, and um, we're rooting for her to uh, really bring about the change in the New York Teachers Union that we all need in our community. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming at WBAI.org. WBAI is not only funded by our listeners, but our board is democratically elected by small dollar funders. Uh, Do you want to hear more socialist content? Become a WBAI buddy by going to give to, that's the number, WBAI.org. $10 or more a month makes you a sustaining member. Um, please call 516-620-3602 or text WBAI to 41444 to contribute in another way. Thank you very much. And now we have um, two nurses with us um, from NISNA, uh, Michelle and Sarah on the line. Um, so, Let's start with you, Sarah. Um, what motivated you to get involved in NISNA? Um, well, I, it's my union. <laughs> um, I knew I wanted to become a nurse for a long time, and I've always seen um, the labor movement as kind of my home. Um, it's really the place for us to build a, you know, the, the union is the place where we can build a stronger labor movement. Um, which would win gains for working people. And um, I think nurses in particular are well-situated to do that because we have such close ties with the community. Um, and NISA in particular is a very progressive union fighting for Medicare for all, things like this that are very important um, for working people. Uh, Michelle, why did uh, you get involved? I started with NISNA after actually finding myself in trouble. Um, I had been a nurse for a very short time, and I had met with a senior nurse who told me, why didn't you go into that room with a delegate? It is your right as a union member to have a delegate present. And at the time, I didn't know my rights. I didn't know my contract. She suggested that I go to a leadership training known as Member Sewer Training that NISNA provides for all members if they're willing to take it. And I went, and that was really the beginning of why I started with NISNA. Sarah, what are the current contract issues and overall problems that have uh, led you to this point where you guys are organizing for um, direct action? So I'm I'm in the public sector. Um, so... It, the private sector nurses are preparing for a picket tomorrow, um, which we plan to, sub, you know, the public sector nurses w- will obviously be out there in solidarity to support them. Um, in the public sector, we just had our contract campaign kickoff, and the theme of it is um, health care justice for the other New York. Um, so basically we're looking at the um, citywide reimbursement structures, national reimbursement structures that kind of, disadvantage the public sector. Um, and one of the, the real important ways to fix that and to, to kind of fix the budget and make sure that public hospitals are getting what they need is 
um, Medicare for all. And, um, you know, that's going to allow us to have things like safe staffing, um, which, you know, the private sector is also working on. And it's, it's sort of the, the budget issue is kind of the key to, to a lot of our other, um, awful workplace conditions we're facing right now. Um, so it's a big ask of the city, but, um, we're really building momentum around it. Could you tell us a little bit more about what those conditions are and when what you're what you're asking to change? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The primary issues that we're dealing with is, is as I said, staffing. Um, so we will sometimes be caring for eight to ten patients, uh, sometimes more, unfortunately. And the research has really shown that it's not a safe environment for patients when when nurses have that caseload. Um, so that's, that's one of the primary asks, but, um, you know, again, dealing with the funding issue is going to help us get things like equipment that works, uh, more support staff and, and other things that our patients really need. Michelle, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, I'm going to kind of agree with Sarah. It's, the ratios that we're really trying to get overall in not just um, our facilities, but overall in the state. We do have a bill that um, NYSNA has helped propose. It's a safe staffing bill. Um, recently, we were able to push it into the assembly. We passed in the assembly. We're having a lot of trouble with the Senate right now. Um, but we continue to try to get that bill to pass. On the ground level, we would like to see it more immediately put into our contract negotiations. Um, currently, there are four facilities that are bargaining for a contract in the private sector. Those facilities are Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx, um, New York Presbyterian, Mount Sinai, and St. Luke's Roosevelt, downtown in Manhattan. Um, our big ask is that we would like to have safe right ratios placed into this contract. Unfortunately, we have been told by management that unless we take that proposal off the table, they refuse to negotiate anything with us. And I understand that you um, are both DSA members. Sarah, could you talk a little bit about um, how the work that you do with NYSNA uh, relates to democratic socialism and some of this other organizing that's happening in, in other labor movements? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm, I primarily work in the labor branch. Um, I, um, this might sound a little repetitive, but I really feel like my home is in the labor movement um, just because the union structure is um, a, a way for working people to organize and, um, you know, get some political education and, and come together and participate in direct action um, in a way that uh, they don't, you know, you wouldn't have if you didn't, if you didn't have a union. Um, and I think, you know, my work in the labor movement and excuse me, in um, the labor branch uh, is is related to that because we're we're fighting for you know one of DSA's citywide priorities is is on Medicare for all. Nizen is fighting for Medicare for all. The working class, working people, poor people need health care. Um, 
So there's a lot of overlap there that that these fights are related to each other. Michelle, do you feel like organizing nurses is like a really critical front of worker struggle because of the really essential role that nurses play um, in our communities? I actually do. Um, it's one of our, our four mothers, I guess you could call her, Florence Nightingale, was the biggest community advocate that I've ever seen. Um she helped push a lot of legislation at the time. She was a nurse. She cared about her community. She wanted to help elevate her community. And I think that kind of, for me as a nurse, it's also our job as nurses to advocate for our patients, not just in the hospitals, but to advocate for them outside of the hospitals, advocate for their health generally, um, not just when they're sick and interred in the hospitals. We have to make sure that as a community, we are trying to elevate them. So I think nurses have to, we have to get involved. We have to make sure that we're being a part of this discussion. And, you know, earlier in the show, we talked a lot about, you know, the success of the teacher strikes. And, you know, we're just seeing, it seems like so many more strikes right now in this country. Sarah, what has it been like to see these other movements striking? Is that, you know, encouraged you guys to do work? You know, where do you think we're, we're headed right now with, with all these strikes? It's tremendously inspirational, um, you know, to see 37,000 public sector employees go out on strike, uh, particularly, you know, here in New York State where Section 210 of the Taylor Law prohibits necessary public employees from going on strike. Um, to see it, you know, across the country, particularly in West Virginia, where, where there's a similar provision, was just really inspiring. Um uh, in Nizna, at our last delegated convention, we had a resolution um, that Nizna would make it a legislative priority to repeal Section 210 of the Taylor Law um, in an effort to regain that that tool to fight the, the strike uh, for for our public sector nurses and all public sector employees. And so, it's an ongoing discussion in our union. Um, but I think a lot of us public sector nurses recognize that the strike is, is kind of our teeth in, in these bargaining um, negotiations and in a lot of our workplace fights. Michelle, um, you guys have already discussed it a little bit. Can you reiterate what's happening uh, tomorrow and what might the informational picket line lead to um, in March? Um, okay, so tomorrow... To 13, February 13th is our informational picket. These pickets are going to be held in front of the facilities of the hospitals I said earlier. Um, I have more information if you guys want some of that. But um, basically, we're trying to get as many nurses out there as possible. We want to see our community as well. So something that NISNA leaders have been doing recently is working on initiatives with our community, talking to the community, going to different organizations and working with them. Um, and we expect that we're going to see a lot of community support tomorrow. Hopefully we'll have a lot of nurses on the lines. Um, but the informational picket for tomorrow is directly to discuss what's happening at our negotiations that they are refusing to even discuss ratios. Um, they haven't even given us a counter proposal to speak of. 
with that being said, this is our our action that we can try to bring um, to light, not only to the nurses, but to the community that this is what's going on, that we refuse to take the proposal off the table. Um, I feel like nurses more and more are starting to realize that ratios are not only better for the patients, but they're better for the nurses. Nurses want to be able to provide not subpar care that you provide intermittently to a patient, but you're not really present to. We want to provide care that is excellent, that we have the capacity to provide because of our clinical expertise and knowledge. Unfortunately, we are usually rushed to do our job, and um, that affects not just the, the patients, it affects the providers in going home and thinking about the things that they wish they could have done when they were at work, but were struggling to even do the minimal activities that they needed to get done for the day. So tomorrow is just our way of reiterating to both management and to the community that safe staffing ratios are utterly important to us. And there will be a strike authorization vote after the pickets, is that correct? Yes. So we are getting ready to do a strike authorization vote with the intent of being able to strike. Um, Negotiations thus far have had over 1,500 nurses participate. Um, We've seen nurses come to discuss and give testimony about why we need safe staffing ratios. Um, And at this point, management has had 22 sessions to discuss with us those issues and have had had no movement, have not moved in any way toward even thinking about putting our ratios in. Um, So I do believe that a strike might be our only option at this point. That's, uh, I mean, it seems like uh, they're not uh, meeting your needs, and it, you guys should be listened to. Your work is so critical, and I just really want to thank you for joining us and sharing uh, this story. And um, hopefully, people will come out uh, and show solidarity um, for all the critical work that you guys do every day, and the critical organizing that you're engaged with to build uh, a better New York and a better world. So, just thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York, broadcasting on 99.5 streaming at WBAI.org. WBAI is not only funded by our listeners, but our board is democratically elected by our small donor funders. Do you want to hear more socialist content and great interviews like we just had with those nurses? Become a WBAI buddy by going to give number two WBAI.org. A $10 or more a month um, makes you a sustaining member, and you can call in to donate at 516-620-3602 or text WBAI to 41 Four four four, and now we're going to open it up to callers. Um, I think we already have somebody on the line. You're live on WBAI Radio. Hey, this is Alexandra Villasenor. Hey, uh, we interviewed you a while back. Uh, you um, are doing a, a climate strike. Is that correct? Yes, that is. And how's that been going? And do you have anything coming up in the future? 
Uh, yeah, so on March 15th is a international climate strike. Some people are calling it the Global Day of Climate Action, where youth um, all across the world will be striking school to protest in action on climate change. And that will just be a climate strike of many in the future. There's talk of some dates on, on May 3rd, but March 15th is the one coming up. Well, thank you so much for, for organizing that and for the, the strike that you've been doing. And it's been really exciting to see so many young people adopting this very revolutionary tactic of, of striking and, and fighting for your future in that way. Thank you. And if somebody else wants to call in, if you're a nurse, if you're a teacher, um, tell us about your, your stories about what you're dealing with. You can call in at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. I think what's just like uh, with that call, um, hearing from the nurses, hearing from Gia the teacher, and just seeing all these actions, what's really clear is that it's women out there leading the fight um, for a better world, for uh, for more democratic ownership of resources, For that it's women leading the struggle to build socialism. Yeah, women get stuff done. Um, and yeah, and I think, you know, you're, you're seeing this youth movement, too. It's not even just with, with climate, um, you know, even with what we're seeing on gun violence. Um, I interviewed a bunch of students who walked out at, at Brooklyn Tech. Um, and also this really amazing thing happens when you get out of a building and you're in the streets with people. It's, it's a way to build community that I think is, is very transformative. Um, I did um, some work with AmeriCorps after, after college, and my job was to actually connect communities and schools. And especially in low-income neighborhoods, you'd be surprised how th- those two things that should be so connected are actually very disconnected. But imagine, you know, if you're out in the streets with your teachers, with your parents, with your principals and community, that builds a whole different kind of society and way of understanding and how we work together that I think fits in incredibly well with the democratic socialist vision that, you know, we have for for the world. Yeah, I believe it was um, Michelle who was talking about, or it was Sarah, actually, who was talking about how um, joining the union and organizing as a nurse has kind of been like a political uh, is a process of political education that and I, I think that's also demonstrated by what you're talking about is that when you engage in collective struggle, you start to learn that your interests are tied in with the interests of others and that by fighting together with them, you can improve um, your life as well as others that improving one life it, that you don't want to do something separate. Oh, it looks like we have a caller live. Hey, you're live on WBAI. Hi, I'm calling from uh, Agana, Guam in the Pacific. That's exciting. <laughs> Very far away. What oh, do you yeah, have? It's, in the, it's in northern Mariana Islands. It's Saipan, and it's in the direct tr- proximity to the Philippines. And do you have some thoughts on, on what we were talking about today? Well, uh, it's just interesting because this, this similar organizing is going on. Um, <clears throat> nurses and students, there was a student walkout um, going to be planned for May Day uh, in, in Ghana, which is the capital of Guam. Oh, that's really exciting to hear. And uh, just, you know, the struggle, you know, uh, the Luta continue, the struggle always continues, especially in Guam. It's 
it's very impoverished Guam. It's some similarities to Puerto Rico. And what are these students fighting for? Well, the environment, rising tides of water. Many islands in the Pacific are being threatened with um, extinction uh, throughout the Pacific. Like so, is this, it, and so you're you know, out in Guam, you're dealing with um, not just the conditions that people deal with, like under capitalism, um, uh-huh. here in the, the core of the U.S., but there's these imperial relations that make um, the, the contradictions even worse, that the, the power over mm-hmm. the people there by the state and by capital is even more devastating. But also you have the military, you have the Air Force, the Navy. Yeah, this constant struggles against militarism in Guam has been going, going on for a long time. Well, it's it's really great to hear from you and have these issues out there. I think it's something that people don't really spend that much talking time talking about. How you know we the United States has all, all these like imperial colonies where um, these military bases operate, and the people there really suffer um, in multiple ways from that. Uh, and it's great to see that they're organizing around environmental issues in Guam, and they're organizing against the military industrial complex. So, thank you very much for the call. Bye. Yeah, and so this is um, our episode today of Revolutions Per Minute. Next week we'll be talking about housing and tenant issues. And follow us on Twitter at NYCRPM for for updates on what's happening uh, in between shows. And you can also listen to us um, on all the places that you can listen to podcasts, all those... (laughs) capitalistic ways like Apple and Spotify, but you know, we got to start somewhere. So make sure you tune in and also on WBAI.org.